Remain standing for the gospel lesson. The gospel is taken from John's gospel, chapter 2, and we will be reading verses 1 through 11. John's gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. The word of the Lord. Maybe see. January uh, 22nd is uh, a, a day set aside during the presidency of. Uh, of uh, Ronald Reagan uh, to observe uh, life. And um, uh, it was a proclamation, and though Right to Life Sunday then is usually the Sunday before the 22nd, and today's the 20th, and there'll be many sermons today preached uh, on life, for that certainly is what the traditional church has believed from its beginning. Uh, next Sunday, I will preach a sermon uh, on uh, the topic. The whole month of January is a month devoted to remembering uh, the life that God has given to us, not only our own lives, but the life uh, that God has given in the womb. And so uh, I will uh, press ahead uh, with that subject on next week. But I wanted to continue... Uh, with the life of Christ uh, following his birth, and I wanted to at least get to this point uh, without any interruption. And today uh, we are in John chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 11. And uh, this is the account of Jesus' first action. And that first action in public was a miracle. And John calls it a sign. In taking a look then at this miracle of changing water into wine, you will see, I'm sure that you will see, 
this as a sign that is a miracle of the glory of Christ and a sign that points you to that glory and then challenges you to trust and believe who Jesus is as the glory of God. The occasion is a wedding in Cana. The wedding was not, as some presuppose, a three-day wedding. I probably have said that in the past myself. But I began to read the text very carefully and then do a little investigation in the first three chapters of John. And when it opens up with the phrase, on the third day, a wedding took place. What it means is, on a day counting not from the beginning of the wedding, but from some of the events in Jesus' life on the third day of calling disciples on that third day, there was a wedding that he attended with his disciples. If you go back and read chapter 1 and 2, you will see that the first day Jesus calls his first disciples, Peter and James and others. And then on the second day, the next day following, he calls two more disciples, Nathaniel and Thomas, But then on the third day, he attends this wedding. And here he finds himself probably about seven or eight miles north of where he grew up in Nazareth in a small town called Cana. And what is significant, of course, is that this is where Jesus performed his first public action, and it was a miracle. And this miracle was purposeful, and it was a sign, and it points to who Jesus is, and it points to us in a real sense and challenges us. Now, I want to show you how this passage works to get to that end in verse 11, which simply reads, and this tells you indeed the purpose of the entire miracle. This is the first, says John, of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed in Cana of Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. And so those disciples that he had gathered had God's glory in Christ revealed to them. And if you might say they they trusted in him, maybe this was the first time that some actually had trusted in him and believed him to be What John chapter 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And it goes on to say that He is light and life. And so here, they came to trust that that is true, and they did so through this sign. But let us work up to that, for this is indeed an interesting passage of Scripture. And it is an interesting passage of Scripture for a number of reasons, because when this is preached on, most people focus on Jesus' language. You know, isn't he kind of harsh toward his mother? And then we get sidetracked. I'm going to talk about that. Or uh, isn't he dismissive and indifferent in the way he says things? This is not my hour. And so uh, maybe in a Bible study, you get hung up on that because it seems to be puzzling. 
And then we miss the main core of why the miracle. To reveal the glory of Jesus and to call you to believe and trust in him. This is his first miracle. Throughout the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, there are miracles, but they're also called signs, and there are signs that point to who Jesus is and what he is going to do for us, all through the Gospels. And there are those who respond through faith and trust in him. Now, let's, let's look for a moment then. Uh, uh, why was Jesus at the wedding? Well, he was invited. And his mother was invited, and his disciples were invited. Apparently, they knew the bride and the groom. After all, it was only, what, about eight miles from where he grew up in Galilee. And so he no doubt knew this couple very well, and he was there as a guest. And remember, he's there as a guest. He's not part of the wedding party as far as we know. Uh, He's not sponsoring the wedding. He has just been invited to the wedding. And then we come to uh, this language, which, as I mentioned, some people get hung up on. Uh, The passage starts out, uh, very simply enough, they ran out of wine. There wasn't enough to take care of the guests. They have no more wine. Uh, And so uh, Jesus' mother came to him and said, now, she knew, of course, that her son was special. She bore him. But you're going to see here that he actually distanced himself from his mother a little bit. He says this in the language, dear woman, why do you involve me? Now, some people would say automatically, isn't that kind of calloused and harsh or a little bit hostile? Actually, in Greek, gune, the word for woman, doesn't have dear in front of it. It just says woman. Woman, why are you involving me? Now, this is not disrespectful. Uh, This was an idiom, an idiomatic way of speaking. But it was kind of unusual because Jesus appears to be distancing himself a bit from his mother for a reason. He wants in this miracle, of course, to let it be a sign that he not only is human, but that he is God in human flesh, and he does so in a real sense, to point out more of his divine origin, who was in human flesh. And so he does say that to her. It is not harsh or it is not rude. It is not hostile, but it is unusual. Now, Jesus says something like this in Mark's gospel in another way. And you might recall these words. When again, he seems to distance himself a bit from his mother and his brothers and sisters, when he says in Mark chapter 3, verse 33, if you want to look it up sometime, he says, who are my mother and brothers? And this is an enigmatic statement to point us to who Christ really is as a person, fully the son of Jesus, I mean the son of Mary, the foster son of Joseph. But he is of divine origin. And he is the expressed image and glory of God. And so the language fits perfectly into this. He also goes on to say, woman, why do you involve me? After all, he was just a guest. And then he goes on to say, this is not my hour. He is pointing out that the real 
glory of God will be displayed later in his life when he is crucified and raised from the dead and then exalted to heaven on high. And then the gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. But this is the beginning of his ministry. And he says, really, if you want to put it this way, my full hour and the full fullness of who I am will not be understood until then. In other words, she's asking him to do something that only God can do. And uh, uh, as she will find out. And what does he do? Well, he turns the water into wine. Now, that is an amazing, an amazing miracle, isn't it? Under any condition or definition, this is a miracle. There are some things in the Bible that we might think on the face of them are miracles, but they could be supernatural providential circumstances that took place. But there are places in the Bible where things happen that it is simply a miracle. You cannot explain it through any natural mechanism or any natural scientific principle or process. When God created the heavens and the earth, he built into that, if you will, reason. And since we are reasonable creatures, we can access nature and understand about our lives. And science can go a long way in explaining a lot of things. Some people think they can explain everything, but uh, they are delusional. There is a limit to what uh, the scientific process can explain. I first got an inkling of this, and it's an old, old book that went back many years ago. Science is a Sacred Cow. It's a wonderful book written by a scientist, and he's pointing out what the limits of science are and what natural reasoning uh, can do and its powers. But there are some things in the Bible that are simply miracles. There is no other way to explain them. God sets aside the ordinary process of the way things come into being or the way they exist, the way they operate, he sets that aside and he immediately, immediately uses a different mode and we call it a miracle. And it is not, it is not something that we can explain. And so just remember that this is a miracle. And you're going to be called upon here throughout this sermon to believe in a miracle. And in the scientific age and in the age of skepticism, I suppose that would be a real problem for many people. But I don't think it's a problem for people who really have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. But let us go through this. This miracle, first of all, reveals the power of God. Now, it's not hard for me to believe in the miracle if God is powerful and operating in this world. The origins of all things find their origin in God. He is the creator. And Jesus also, in Colossians and other places in the Bible, is also said to be there from the beginning. The triune God is the creator. And this miracle is a sign that points to God's power operating in our world. It's not a false miracle. It's not a, a, a telling of something or some a person maybe who doesn't think very critically reporting that something happened that was a miracle. You know, you get that a lot too. No, this is a true miracle. 
to point to the power of God, that the power of God is present. And what does Jesus do? He turns the water into wine. It reveals then Jesus' association with the Father and with the Creator. It reveals His creative power and that He was indeed in the beginning with God, the very beginning of the Gospel of John. The miracle also reveals this. It reveals that this God who is powerful is also a God who lavishes upon us His generosity. Now, stay with me here just for a minute, and I, I want you just to, to, to uh, comprehend that this miracle is a demonstration of God's lavish generosity. There were six stone jars placed, no doubt, at the entrance. Now, these jars are made of stone, and that has significance, too, because clay jars sometimes could be impure. But in the Old Testament, stone jars had a certain purity about them, a, a kosher quality that earthen jars did not. But this is a stone. These are stone jars. And they're 20 to 30 gallons apiece. Now, that means that if they were 20 gallons, what is that, 120? I mean, uh, they contain 20 gallons. What is that, 120 gallons? They contain 30, that's 180. So let's round it off to 150. We'll just round it off to 150. Now, there was no water there because they had used it up, no doubt. There must have been a lot of guests. And they had washed their hands and purified themselves. And they'd run out of water too, it appears, to some extent. Or, or at least they had to go get some more. And so Jesus commands these servants to go and to fill these jars up, and let's say all the jars contained 150 gallons, and it's made into wine. 150 gallons of wine. Well, let me say that if you take the average wine bottle and um, I think they're about five to a gallon. We're talking here in the neighborhood of 750 bottles of wine. Does that shock you? Did you ever think of it that way? 750 bottles of wine on the walls. <laughs> we can make a song out of it. And uh, this was real wine. It was uh, a miracle that was performed before Thomas Bramwell Welsh. Uh, was born into the world in 1825. You know, Welsh grape juice started so the Methodists wouldn't have to take alcohol at communion. So this was before Mr. Welsh. And this was back in biblical days, and it was, uh, no doubt, wine. Now the question is, why so much wine? Why so much wine? Well, let me remind you that some other miracles Jesus did. Why so much bread at the feeding of the 5,000? Why so much? Bread and wine. There may be a hint here of the Lord's Supper, of course. These are the elements that can only be used for the Lord's Supper. Bread and wine. You can't use apple juice. And you can't be baptized. And there was a radio commentator some years ago decided to be baptized in jello. 
a stunt he did on, it was liquid, and you know it can be liquid. Uh, he did uh, uh, the stunt in Welsh, West Virginia, ironically, though he was on the, radio, state, uh, the TV in New York for years. And I don't know what's happened to him, but he was half crazy. The point is, it probably does point to the Lord's Supper. But no one would get that at this point. What they would get is this. There's an awful lot of wine. Or at the feeding of the 5,000, there's an awful lot of bread. They took up, took up baskets full. So what sign is this miracle pointing to? It's pointing to the glory that is Christ through whom we are showered with the lavishness of God's gifts. Think of his mercy toward you, which are new in every day. It says earlier in this book that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God lavishes upon you and upon me his good gifts. And that's why we pray for his abundance. I remember the, uh, a town not too far from Cana or Nazareth, at Nain, just south of Nazareth. And there that woman in her hour of need in the Old Testament was visited by the prophet and fed by the power of God. The widow of Nain. One of the things that we have to understand in the world where we're so concerned about our finances so concerned about our children, so concerned about our opportunities, and those do consume us, that we have a God in Jesus Christ who demonstrates to us that he is willing, lavishly willing, to pour out his good gifts upon us. But sometimes we have not because we, what? Ask not. My friend, if this teaches anything, that God is a generous God and that we need to pray, earnestly pray, that he might demonstrate that generosity in our midst continually. But remember, the greatest generous gift that God ever gave was his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. What does John 3.16 say? I won't even quote it. Just remember it. He gave his son that you and I might have hope in this world and hope for the next. So it points to the lavishness of God's generosity. This also is a sign that points to something else. It is a sign that points to, if you will, the presence of God. Here is Jesus at this wedding. And no doubt he had lots of cousins, brothers, sisters, mothers, friends. They all knew him to an extent. But here this sign for the first time really points to the presence of God. You know, one of the greatest comforts in life is to believe that God is with you. Natalie Sleet's little song, Wherever I Go, the Lord is With Me. It's good to know that when you're in the hospital, isn't it, Art? It's good to know that God is with you. 
It's good to know when you're down at the bottom of the barrel, if you will, that God is with you. It's good to know when you think you've sinned away your day of grace that God is with you and he is more generous toward you than you can ever imagine or think. God is with us. Who can be against us? Because he is for us. This is a marvelous, marvelous sign. It points to the glory of Christ and his presence. What a wonderful thing. The minister in the Presbyterian Church is ordained as a word, a minister of word and sacrament. I have the privilege of preaching and teaching on a regular basis. No other elder, no other ordinary layman, what we call the regular office in the church, has that privilege. It's a office that the church sets aside for some that God has called to preach and to teach. I also have the privilege of serving communion and baptizing and baptizing your children. And before the state, I have the, I have the, uh, and by the powers of the church, I have the privilege of performing weddings, delightful, and funerals. There is one thing, though, that I think some people forget that the minister has a right that no one else does, and that is to offer a blessing at the end of the service called the benediction when he raises his hands. A young man who was a youth minister at First Presbyterian Church in Schenectady asked me if I would come up and preach his ordination sermon, and uh, I went up. And uh, I remember my beginning. It was in my philosophy days, so I started off with something from Plato, whatever I'm... I might not do that now. I'm out of my philosophy stage. And so I said something and connected it. Uh, It wasn't, by the way, very long as I am today. And um, he had never officially preached a sermon, administered the Lord's table, baptized anyone. But he was, for the first time, going to get the privilege at the end of the service to raise his hands and offer up a blessing from Scripture. Just like Aaron did. Just like Moses did. Just like Jesus did. Just like the apostles did. Just like those through the centuries that our ministers of word and sacrament have had the privilege to do. The layperson can close in prayer as a benediction. But you don't have the right in our tradition to raise your hand and bless the people from the scripture that is reserved to the minister. There wouldn't be anything really wrong if you did. It just doesn't keep good order. He got up to raise his hands. He became so overwhelmed with emotion that his hands started to shake. And I looked at his knees and I thought he was going to drop to the floor. It dawned on him that he was doing something that represented Christ and his glory. He was doing something with the presence of Christ in his life and with the help of Christ. 
and I thought he was going to buckle. I was this close to him sitting down. He got through it with tears. I said, oh, Lord, if you could just keep me that way when I baptize and serve the Lord's Supper and preach the word of God and bless the people. Let me never handle holy things in an unholy way. And C.S. Lewis warned the minister and all of us not to be so presumptuous as to handle holy things in a common way. When you come to communion, it is a truly wonderful blessing from God. When you receive the blessing, it is a blessing from God. All of these things, this miracle at the wedding of Cana of Galilee was done for one purpose, to reveal the glory of Christ and to challenge you to come to faith in him. Read the last verse again. The whole purpose for this entire passage and this miracle is summed up in verse 11. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their trust in him. I'm not going to sit here and try to explain any miracle. I, don't, I, I, I couldn't cause you to believe a miracle or disbelieve. There's no power in me. Either the Holy Ghost is going to enable you to believe who Christ is and that he performed this miracle or you're not. But I believe the scriptures when it says Jesus performed this miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And it is a delight to see that his disciples came to trust him. And my friend, the challenge to you in this sermon is, do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and have you received him and do you trust him as your Lord and your Savior? Do you believe he is the glory of God? Do you believe he is that one who has come in our midst and the promise is fulfilled that I will never leave you or forsake you? Do you believe that God is with us in Christ? Do you believe that he began all things and he will end all things because this miracle points to who Jesus really is? And I call you to put your faith and your trust in him. We're still in January. Let that be our dedication and desire in the year 2013 that we will behold the glory of God through faith and trust in him. Amen.